Turn to Romans chapter 11. Now, did you know that God makes some pretty significant promises to his people and they're actually recorded in Scripture? So, for instance, if you are a a believer in Christ, there's some pretty amazing promises that are given. Like you're promised the gift of the Holy Spirit at the moment that you believe, the promise of fullness of life, eternal life, resurrection, forgiveness, God's presence, joy, peace, knowledge, All of this is promised to you. Those are some pretty hefty promises. Uh, I mean, anywhere from the abundance of life to wisdom, God promises to his people. Now, God is certainly a promise maker, true? But is God a promise keeper? Does he really keep his promises to his people? Well, the answer to that question actually has significant implications for your life, and most certainly, your eternity. And if you're going to answer that question, you're going to have to wrestle with, does God keep his promises to his people, Israel? Is he really faithful? I mean, think of some of the promises that God has made the people of Israel. He has promised to be their God, that they would be his people, that his presence would dwell among them. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 12, God makes this amazing covenant with Abraham. And he says, listen, I am going to make to you, give to you a land. Right now, you don't have any real estate. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a nation, a nation so populous that it'll outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. And I'm also going through you and your family that you are going to give, be a blessing to all the nations. And for Abraham to understand that it is God who made this promise and he's the one that's going to fulfill it. There's an event that takes place a couple chapters later in Genesis chapter 15. Remember when, when Abraham believed God and God declared him or reckoned him or considered him righteous. There's an event that took place so that Abraham would know that God was giving an unconditional promise. In ancient times, when two people would make a covenant, they would slay an animal, cut it in half, and then the two of them would walk through it. And the idea is like, hey, if, if one of us ever breaks this, may that happen to us. We literally be cut in two. We die. So God does this. He, they have this, this sacrifice that is made, animals cut in two. But Abraham is made to be an observer as God literally passed through as symbolized by a smoking furnace and a lamp of fire. And he, God passes through the sacrifice. Abraham simply watches. God does this to say, This is an unconditional promise I am making to you. Think of some of the other promises given to Israel. Remember in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that through you, you will have a son who will reign forever. It is called the Davidic covenant. There will be a promised son that will reign eternally as a king. Or another one, in Jeremiah 31, you have the promise of the new covenant. This is an amazing, profound promise. God says that his law is actually going to be written on the hearts of his people, that he is going to be their God, they are going to be his people, and he says, and that their sins he is going to remember no more. God says, I'm going to do this, and I am making this promise to you. Now, those are awesome promises. How is Israel doing with all that? Well, think of it. Well, by the time Paul is writing the book of Romans... Israel has completely lost all of its glory. They've lost its capital. 
Rome dominates them. Shortly, not too long from after this is written, they're going to lose the temple, okay? Uh, They have no former glory. In fact, if you remember, as we're making our way through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, verse 21, last verse, chapter 10, what does it say about Israel? But as for Israel, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The people of Israel basically said, we don't want this Jesus to be our Messiah. We got a lot of reasons why don't, we don't like it. It interferes with how we want to do things. We lose control. We don't want this guy that's been hung on a cross. No, 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 no. We don't, we don't want that. No. So is God going to keep his promises to Israel? Is he? Uh, you need to wrestle with that. Is there a future for Israel or is God pretty much done with Israel? You know that there's a lot of folks that teach that you know, what happened is Israel wholesale rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and God said, that's it, we're done. I'm going to work out my promises, and I'm going to give them to another people. I'm going to give them to a spiritual Israel, which we will call the church. And so the thought is that all the promises given to Israel now are actually fulfilled in the church. And God does these kind of gymnastics to kind of technically keep his promises And so that's what's happening. Is that what's going on? Or is God literally going to keep his promises to Israel? Well, Romans chapter 11 is probably one of the strongest refutations, the idea that God has given up his people. Is God going to fulfill his promises to Israel? Well, Paul says, Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I want to start off with me. God's present faithfulness in the time of Paul, if you want to see it, Paul says, Chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Has God rejected his people? Look at what he says. May it never be. The strongest refutation in Greek, he says, absolutely not. Paul says, for I too am an Israelite. I am a descendant of Abraham. I even know what tribe I'm from. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul says, listen, if you think God has given up on his promises to Israel, I am exhibit A. Absolutely not. God is fulfilling his promises, and I happen to be a recipient of it. I am a Jew, and yet I believe. I believe in the Messiah, and I'm receiving the blessings. And he goes on to say, not only am I receiving it, but let me remind you of God's past faithfulness among the remnant of Israel. God has always been consistently faithful to keep his promises, even when it looks like his people have abandoned him. So he says, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, and that has the idea of choosing ahead of time. Did God forsake the people that he chose ahead of time? Well, he's going to recount a time in Israel's past that makes it crystal clear. God does keep his promises, and he's got a remnant of his people. He says, verse 2, Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel. Now, the Jewish people in the Hebrew scriptures, they didn't have like Exodus 3, 12. They didn't have any of those citations. They just had the scrolls and what they, they knew the scriptures so well, they literally just reference a key event, um, like a symbol, like the bush, or a key figure, like Elijah. And they all knew, then they just recount the events that took place and they could actually do it. So he says, remember about Elijah, what the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. Remember it? He says, verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. 
Paul is going to bring out an amazing event that took place in Israel's history. It's an event that you can find recorded in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. What had happened in Israel as though God had been so faithful to them, provided them a land, blessed them beyond measure, the Jewish people decided they kind of liked the Canaanite gods a little bit better than the one true God, Yahweh. It was one of the reasons why God said, I have had it with the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. I literally want you to wipe them out because I'm going to judge them through you. I want you to completely eliminate them because if you don't, you're going to be tempted to follow their gods. And that is always the case. People always seem to want to kind of leave the one true God to start worship the gods of whatever nation they're living in. Very prevalent in our own culture. Well, that's exactly what happened. The Israelites, despite knowing everything they did about God, they just like, yeah, you know, these Canaanite gods are cool. Wow. Look at, they got Baal. Baal was the god of thunder, storms, lightning, rain. And he had a consort. Her name was Asherah. And she was the fertility goddess. And she was worshipped through cultic prostitution. I mean, about as vile as you could get, that's how she was worshipped. And and the Jews were like, dude, this is great, man. This really appeals. I get this, man. This moves me. I like this kind of worship. And so they started worshiping the gods of Baal and Asherah. Well, God says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to show you that I am the one true God. In fact, he sends this prophet Elijah. Okay, Elijah was hated. The king at that time in Israel was a guy by the name of Ahab. He had a wonderful wife whom none of you have named your kids after, named Jezebel, okay? She was, you didn't, did you? No, okay, all right, please don't. If I'm at the hospital and you've done that, I'm going to help you. I'm like, no, we're not doing this, all right? Okay. She was vicious, she was scheming, and she hated Elijah because Elijah, he spoke the truth, he was unafraid, and so basically what happened is Elijah prayed and asked God to withhold rain. So imagine this, okay? So if you are kind of worshiping the God of rain and storms, but he is not producing because Elijah had prayed and you're now in a drought, this drought lasted three and a half years. Elijah was very unpopular with the king and queen. They hated him. And finally, after three and a half years, Elijah said, let's get this figured out once and for all to find out who really is God. You up for the challenge? Ready? And so they brought 850 of the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and they met at Mount Carmel. And what they had is they had two little altars, and they had these two sacrifices. Put the sacrifice there on there, and and, uh, Elijah says, why don't you boys go first? Okay, all we're asking is the one true God consume the sacrifice. That doesn't sound too hard, especially if your God's the God of lightning. Shouldn't be a big deal, right? Sweet. Well, they hadn't been too successful the last three and a half years to call down rain, but they felt like this showdown, now we're going to show. Well, so they do. And they start dancing around, calling out to each other, uh, gyrating, making the motions, and, and no response. I mean, they had got an early start on this in the morning. And Elijah, being the encouraging type that he is, he offered them some explanations as to perhaps why Baal hadn't quite responded at this present time. He said, you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps he's in the bathroom relieving himself. He's in the library and he's taking too long. Why don't you knock and yell a little louder and say, hey, come on, come on, let's go. It's time to consume this sacrifice. Or maybe he's on a vacation and he's out of town and you need to yell and cut yourself a little deeper and then he'll respond. Or perhaps, you know, 
Baal might be a real heavy sleeper. And that's what's going on. And so he tells them that, and they start gyrating and screaming all the louder. They literally, they would glance and cut themselves, and they're bleeding all over the place. Can you imagine 850 of these folks screaming their heads off, wailing, flailing, bleeding all over the place, calling out to Baal just to consume this sacrifice? And nothing happens. In fact, they go through the lunch hour. They're not taking a lunch break. We can't give up now. They go all the way. It's through now. It's getting late afternoon, and it is apparent to all Israel that's watching this Baal he's not it and it says it's at the time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah then stepped forth placed the sacrifice on the altar and he said uh, we're going to need a little help here Uh, can you douse this with water and so they do they douse it with water he says let's do it three times and so they do literally at this particular altar they have this trench around it it is all filled with water If you are a Boy Scout or if you've ever tried to make a campfire, you know that you don't pour the water into where you're trying to create the fire. Do you guys know that? Yeah, you do. Okay, yes. Of course that. You were going to do that. And what Elijah did then is he prayed and he stepped back. And literally God consumes not only the sacrifice, but the altar, all the water was licked up. Even the stones themselves were melted and consumed And all people saw the glory of God, that he is the one true God. And then Elijah said, all right, now that we know these false prophets, they're gone. Now, they were already half bled to death anyway. They make their run for the creek. And they are literally, all these minions of Baal and Asherah are killed. And then Elijah prays for rain. And a torrential downpour then moves off to the the, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and starts coming down. How do you think this all went down at the palace? How do you think Ahab and Jezebel are doing with this? Well, you need to know this. When you humiliate a megalomaniac, it makes them fiercely jealous and dangerous. And, and Jezebel makes the statement, Elijah's dead within the next 24 hours. Well, they, a messenger comes and informs Elijah that Jezebel is out to kill you. You've got 24 hours left. And, you know, he's, after all that he's gone through, he's like, I've got to get out of here. I mean, I'm the only one left. I, I'm sure she's infuriated. So he takes off, and he runs for all that he's worth, and he keeps running and running and running until he can't run anymore, and he finally just kind of passes out. And you need to know this. Sometimes under great amounts of duress and just putting yourself out there and serving the Lord in some pretty profound, significant ways, you might go through a pretty significant depression. If you ever get the idea that, well, if you're a really holy person, you're really walking with God, you will never go through a depression or discouragement. I mean, after all, you're a person of faith. Uh, You need to know that if you are serving God in some pretty significant ways, you may very well go through some very deep and dark times. That's certainly the case for Elijah. So deep was his depression, this significant time, he literally asked God, would you just take my life, okay? I, I, I'm the only one left. Would you just take me? And it's really interesting. You look at it in 1 Kings chapter 18 and, and 19, how God literally so carefully and tenderly cares for Elijah in the midst of his emotional and mental pain that he's going through. And he restores him and asks him good, profound questions and, and gives him a work to do. And while he's in this depression, Elijah makes that statement. You find there in Romans 11.3, Lord, they've killed your prophets and have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. Just take me out of this. But what was the divine response? Look at verse four. 
the divine response was this. What does God say? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So while Elijah is hiding in the cave at Mount Horeb, God says, you know what? You don't see the full picture. I've got 7,000 of my folks that haven't bowed the knee to these fake, fictitious Canaanite gods. Don't think you're the only one left standing. Elijah learned that there was, he was not a minority of one. And this particular scene is a vivid example of God bringing justice upon a majority of the Israelites and yet preserving a remnant, right? I got 7,000 that haven't capitulated and given themselves over to the cultural gods. I've got them. That's how I work. I work through a remnant. I've always got my true believers. And then when, you know why Paul's referencing this? It's probably because he kind of felt like that. If your ministry, your ministry as the apostle of Gentiles is to go and get beat up by the Jews and have sticks thrown at you and get kicked around and insulted all the time, you might feel like you're the only one left, but not the case. You might feel that way. You might feel like, I am the only Christian in my family. That is painful. I've, I've been there for years. Is, some family gatherings can be flat out uncomfortable. Or maybe you feel like you're the only Christian on the force, at your job, in your class, at your school. You need to know something. God always has a remnant. There are always people that the flame of Christ and faith burns brightly and deeply. You are never alone. And God seems to delight in working through a small remnant. It just shows his power. He's going to take weak people, folks prone to depression, got some issues, running away from a woman who wants to kill you. Those are the people that God likes to use. Just weak people like you and me, small amount, just to make it crystal clear, it is God who is doing the work. And that's what Paul is illustrating here. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 5, you know what? In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, just a small number, according to God's gracious choice. God chooses. In fact, remember in Romans chapter 9, all that pretty serious theology that we've been wrestling with, where God makes these choices? He chooses. And whom he chooses, they will believe. And it's all by grace. It's not by works. In fact, look at verse 6. But if it is by grace, you're not made right with God by works. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If you earn God's favor because you keep rules, rituals, sacrifices, certain festivals, you have certain things done to you, whether you're a baby or a seven-year-old or 15 or 13, If you think that's what makes you right with God, those particular religious works, if you're trying to fill this God-shaped void in your life with anything but God, that's not grace, that's you working. Salvation, real relationship with God is all by grace and it's all by faith. And God always has his remnant. You know, at no time in the history of Israel as a nation did all of the Jewish people believe. There has always been a distinction between national Israel and the true spiritual Israel, those who really believed. I mean, if you ever read the Old Testament, I mean, you're like, you've got to be kidding me. These are the people of God? They are wicked. 
They're worse than me. They're worse than a lot of folks in our country. They do a lot of bad stuff. They're evil. They forsake God. And these are the people of God. God always has a remnant of true believers among national Israel. That was what Paul is emphasizing. It is always the case. In fact, the prophets made that crystal clear. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zephaniah, they all made it clear God has a remnant within Israel. But they just kind of glossed over that or ignored that. God has always been faithful to his promises and he keeps them with a remnant in Israel. But you know what? People, we're, we're longing for righteousness based on personal merit, right? It's kind of embedded in human nature. There is something that I must do. I must perform. I got to do certain things to earn God's favor, to receive righteousness. Uh, there was an example of that this past year. The New York Times uh, had an interesting article on the former New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg. He was interviewed at his 50th college anniversary. And at this time, uh, Bloomberg is starting to see like, you know what? A lot of my pals that I ran around with, now that I'm 72, they're dead and they're not at the reunion. And he was starting to think about his own mortality and all these folks that passed away. The author of this interview concluded that uh, this, this is what he wrote. But if Bloomberg senses that he may not have as much time left as he would like, he has little doubt about what would await him at a judgment day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he said, with a grin, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. And that's what people think. I mean, seriously? We've created our own grid of what's right. I am semi-nice to some of the people in my family. I go to church every once in a while. I got 12 Bibles, 14 different colors of shades of New Testament. We got all these weird things that we put out there. Gun control, serious? Helping people with their overeating issues? Really? God, we earn his favor? We show ourselves to be great before God because of those sort of things? No. It's all by grace. And it's a matter of faith. Paul's going to go on and start giving some scripture verses from the Old Testament to continue to show this. What then, verse 7, was what Israel is seeking It is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Israel was seeking righteousness with God. That's why they were trying to keep up with the festivals and do all these different things. They really were hung up on circumcision. They thought, man, that's that's it, man. We're in because of that. You know what? They didn't obtain it. However, the chosen ones, they did obtain it, and the rest were hardened. Remind you of someone? Reminds you of Pharaoh. Remember that we looked at Pharaoh? Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Why? Because he rejected the one true God. You need to know something. You hear the gospel? You hear about the living one true God? And you're like, eh, not for me. No, I'm not going to be a religious freak. I'm not doing that. I don't want to believe those things. And you kind of put up this wall. Your heart gets hardened. It ends up really poorly for you if you continue to resist the living God. Case in point, Pharaoh. But he says, you know what? That's what's happening here. You rejected the grace of God. It's all in front of you. Your heart's become hardened. In fact, he says in verse 8, he starts quoting some verses here. He goes on in verse 8 to says, Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. What is, what is it to be, to have a hardened heart? 
It's to become insensitive to spiritual realities, to be blind and deaf to the living God, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. A table is like, that's where you put your blessings, like your food, right? God's provided, you enjoy. Israel had been giving all of these blessings, the law, the festivals, I mean, they had a rich history. All of that was meant for them to enjoy because it pointed them to Christ. And you know what happened? Just like it said, their table became a snare and a trap. Instead of seeing these things pointing to Christ, they actually started fixing and focusing on this and they put their faith in their rituals, their festivals, and, and their ability to follow these things. And they missed it. What should have been a blessing to the nations became a snare and a trap. And look what he says, verse 9, and a stumbling block. They stumbled over it. They tripped over it. They missed the whole intent and a retribution to them. In verse 10, and let their eyes be darkened to see not. If you miss all that God is showing you to lead you to put your faith in Christ as the Messiah, the one true God, you become like dark. Your eyes are darkened. You see not and they bend their backs forever. Will God keep his promises to Israel? Absolutely. In fact, we see it as we've gone through these verses in his past faithfulness among a remnant of Israel. But there is one other proof that Paul is going to give about God keeping his promises to Israel. And beginning in verse 11, and we're going to look more about this next week, this is going to blow your mind. I had multiple people after the first service telling me, like, I had, no, I had no idea. I never knew that. Get ready. If you've not spent a lot of time reading Romans 11, watch what he says this. God's current faithfulness to move Israel to trust in Christ is through the salvation of the Gentiles. And you're like, what? Are you serious? Look at this, verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. Did the Jewish people stumble, trip over Christ, this, the Messiah, like reject the promises, say, no, we don't want him, so as to fall, like fall permanently, like to do a nosedive and never to be able to recover? Did they fall to a state where they would never, ever come to a place where they believe, where they were, it was like finally and forever? What does Paul say? Look at this. May it never be. He says, you need to understand something. But by their transgression, their rejection of Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You need to know something. Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah led to the gospel going to the Gentiles. It led to salvation to these non-Jewish people. And there's something else. This is the part that's like, what? Look at the end of verse 11. Why is that? To make them jealous. What? Right there. You see, the Gentiles have a vital ministry in God's plan with Israel, and that is to literally make them jealous. When they see these pagan Gentiles believing in the promised Messiah, Jesus, 
and receiving the riches of the spiritual blessings that are in them. Their lives are literally transformed. They live differently. They love God. They, they believe in Abraham and they have the faith of Abraham. They believe the scriptures. They're alive. That is meant to take the people of Israel when they see that and it is to move them to jealousy. Isn't that amazing? You know, we'd never know that if, unless it was written, but you're going to find out as we keep reading here, this was what Paul was all about. I've been thinking about this, by the way. When Jewish people walk into your average, typical church service, are they provoked and moved to jealousy? Like, whoa, man, what they've got, their worship, their love for God, how they give of themselves, how, they, how they're gracious, how they're transformed. I want what they want. Is that the typical experience of when a Jewish person comes into a church service? Or are they just merely provoked and like, good night, I don't want any of this, I'm out of here. Are they moved to jealousy? Well, Paul says, that is part of my, a major part of my ministry. God has brought salvation to the Gentiles to make them jealous. I mean, think about it right now. There are very few people in our church that are Jewish. Most of us are good old American. We don't even know what our descendants are. We, you know what I'm saying? We're just American, right? We don't know. We're about as Gentile as they come. But we believe, we love the Lord, we believe the scriptures, we're trusting in Christ, and we worship him. That's all part of God's plan. And part of that plan is to drive the Jewish people to jealousy. Verse 12, he says, Now if their transgression... Their forsaking of Christ is riches for the world. I mean, the whole world has benefited in a sense because of their rejection. And their failure is riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their fulfillment be? Okay, how much more will it be when the time where they actually see that Jesus is the promised Messiah? You know, there's 300, about 333 prophecies in the Old Testament given about the Messiah. There are so many given so that you mathematically could never miss it. And when Jesus starts systematically nailing these off in his first coming, about 130 of them, and he's going to fulfill the others in the second coming, as you can see in the book of Revelation, how is it that the Jewish people miss it? One day they're not going to miss it, and there's going to be a great fulfillment. In fact, it's really interesting when you look at like Zechariah, for instance, an amazing prophet, he says in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, you might want to write this verse down. He said, God says he literally is going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So Jesus says, so they will look on me whom they've pierced. One day, they're going to actually look upon me whom they have pierced and they will see and they will believe. In chapter 13, verse 1, he goes on in Zechariah to say that there is going to be a fountain that will cleanse them. And in chapter 14, he talks about the fact that there is going to be a king over all the earth. Who in the world might you be talking about? You're talking about Jesus, the Messiah. And one day, fulfillment will happen. He says, just imagine what it's going to be like. But Paul says in verse 13, you know what? You need to know, they have stumble but they haven't fallen it's kind of like uh, if you're into horse racing you might remember this event there was a, a horse by the name of a fleet alex and for most of us we only watch horse racing when we think there's going to be a triple crown and then all of a sudden we become rather engaged right well in 2005 at the preakness derby a fleet alex had moved his way from the back of the pack and the, at the final quarter mile he was almost about ready to emerge to the front when one of the other horses clipped his back heels and a fleet alex looks like it's going to do and he's going to do a nosedive in fact there you can see the horse you see 
His, his nose almost dives right in the ground. The jockey, Jeremy Rose, felt like he was going to go down and literally be trampled to death. Can you imagine? Your horse goes down, you're dead. All those racehorses are going to just trample you. But something amazing happened. Although a fleet Alex's nose almost hit the ground when his heels got clipped, he literally emerged back up before going down. And not only did he get back up and ran, he actually won the race by about five lengths. And I tell you this because right now, it looks like Israel's done a nosedive. (laughs) They just continue to refuse. Well, they're not down for the count. They are going to rise. And you just keep looking like the book of Revelation You see in Revelation 7, there's 144,000 sealed Jews. They become great proclaimers of Christ. You look at there's going to be a fulfillment and the the curse is going to be lifted and the lion's going to lay down with the lamb and Jesus is going to reign as king and all the nations are going to gather and one day the Jewish people are going to be at the heart of it and that's what Paul is anticipating. So he says, you need to know something about me, verse 13. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch that I am the apostle of Gentiles. Remember Paul? Jesus said, you're going to go to the Gentile people. James, Peter, they all, the apostles, they identified you are an apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, that's me, but I want you to know something about me. I am an apostle of the Gentiles that I might magnify my ministry, verse 14, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. I want you to know something. Yes, I go and I proclaim Christ and the gospel to all these pagans and Gentiles. Man, they're wicked and wild. They know nothing about Israel. They don't know anything about Yahweh. They don't know anything about Jesus. But I tell them about who he is and what he's accomplished on their behalf, and they believe. But I want you to know something about my ministry. My ministry also is all about moving my countrymen to jealousy. I want them to see what they're missing so they too will believe in the Messiah. It's kind of like, let's say there's a particular young lady and, and she's dating a guy and, uh, you know, she's like kind of interested, but the guy is like really interested in her, man. But, you know, she's like, eh, kind of take it or leave it sort of deal. And this guy, you know, he finally works up the courage to ask her, hey, will you marry me? And so he goes with a great proposal and she's like looking at him like, nah, not really interested, pass, Right? Oh, he's devastated. So they go to go their own ways. And, and so they are. She's, she's uh, kind of checking out the internet on her social media one day, and she looks and, bah, right there, there's the old boyfriend. <gasps> Wait a second. <gasps> Wait, who's he with? Hey, whoa, a second here. Look at that, that girl. Why? Why? She isn't half as beautiful and wonderful as I am. What? <gasps> and she's like filled with jealousy, like, oh, my goodness, that's, oh, And pretty soon she realizes, oh, no, I know it. I have made the biggest mistake of my life. I am going to go back to him and tell him, forsake that woman that he's with because I am back and you can have me now. Now, I don't want you to take this illustration too far, okay? But in essence, that's what God is doing with the Gentiles. Think of it. I mean, man, where we've come from, we may not be all that attractive, but God has brought us into the fold and we are intended through our lives, through the presence of the life of Christ living in us, to move the Jews to jealousy. Now, there's some folks that are saying, you know, uh, and they teach this. God's done with Israel. 
it's not going to happen. There'll be a few Jewish people that will eventually believe in Jesus, but really not too many. Um, It's called replacement theology. And what they do is they say that all the promises that God made to Israel, all of those are going to be filled in the church. Okay? They are highly inconsistent, though, because all the curses that God made to Israel... Like, oh, no, no, we're not going to have that. We only want the good stuff, man, right? We don't want the curses. We will take the blessings. By the way, Israel, that, that name appears 70 times in the New Testament. It always means Israel. I'm like, oh, that's brilliant, huh? No, it always means Israel. It never could be translated church. You know why? Because God is faithful to his promises. Even when it doesn't look like he might be, he always has a remnant. You know, see, God's unlike humans. Unlike humanity, God always keeps his promises. I mean, we're a dishonest folks. Come on, right? Think of it. I mean, we've got wedding vows are broken all the time. Contracts mean little. Courts are just overloaded with all these broken promises. The settled counseling offices are packed out to mend all these broken hearts because of broken promises. It is hard to find men and women of integrity, isn't it? But God always keeps his promises. His promise of his presence, joy, forgiveness, eternal life, abundance, wisdom. I am with you. I will never forsake you. Will you believe? Because I am faithful. That is my nature. And by the way, can I just tell you something? Don't use the word promise lightly or often. You know, there's some parents that make a critical error. They're promising their kids all this stuff. I promise you I'll do this or that or whatever. That's really a bad habit to get into because you know why? You break some of those promises and the kids go, huh, Promise means that it could be broken. I'd use it real rarely. But when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And by the way, if you're going through a difficult time or you've got a friend that is, give them the promises of God because he is faithful and you can hold on to him no matter what storm you're going through. You see, when we see how God fulfills his promises, we see the wonders of his way. And the wonders of God's way shows us the depth of God's grace. There was a pretty phenomenal, phenomenal event that took place May 18th, 1980. Mount St. Helens blew. The whole side of the mountain literally just exploded. I mean, they knew. Geologists had been telling them this is going to happen. They had all sorts of indicators like smoke coming out of the top of the mountain, which is a good idea, that this thing is going to blow. And they had a little safe zone, and they said, stay away from this. You will not make it. Well, Mount St. Helens blew, man. It was, it was like a nuclear bomb going off, a massive one. And, I mean, it could be heard 600 miles away. Now, the folks that they thought they were in the safe zone, but they get some nice pictures, you know, 57 people died despite all the warnings and all the blockades around there because they were just way too close. And so when this thing blew and they realized this is far bigger and more powerful than we ever imagined, they're doing these rescue efforts to these folks that were, thought they were safe like a mile or two away. Uh-uh, uh-uh. They all had a very similar story, these ones that were rather close. They said they actually never heard the volcano blow. Like, what? Yeah, some of them said they saw, like, the dark cloud, but they thought it was rain moving in. And yet, they're like, how could you not hear it? Well, the scientists were able to explain this to them. It's called the zone of silence. Literally, when the volcano blew, that thrust was so great that it literally took the sound waves into the atmosphere It came and bounced down, and it made several waves. There were places that you couldn't hear. In fact, you didn't know if you were like a mile or two away that the volcano blew unless you actually were watching it because you would never hear anything. It was just silence. There was nothing there. And that's kind of like what's going on with Israel today. 
they are in like the zone of silence. Might be true of you. You've been in the zone of silence. Jesus said, they're going to have eyes that will not see. They will have ears that will not hear. You think, how could they miss Jesus the Messiah? Because they're in the zone of silence and they miss it. But God is faithful to his promises and the wonders of God's way reveals the depth of God's grace. And God will keep his promises to Israel. You come back next week and you're going to see something fascinating. Let's pray. Lord, you're an awesome God and you keep your promises, perhaps in ways that we'd never imagined, but you are faithful. You've always got your remnant. And if there was someone here today who has never trusted in Christ, would they simply pray with me and say, God, I've been in the zone of silence. It's like been chaos in my soul, but I turn from myself and my sin and I believe in Jesus. I trust him for forgiveness of sins and I give you my life. And Father, for the rest of us, may we be confident in your promises. You're a faithful God. You're faithful to your people, Israel. You are faithful to us. May that change how we live. May we walk in the joy and the newness of life, knowing who you are and the promises that you keep. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.